As we continue in the perusal of the Christian doctrine, that we might understand the whole counsel of God, which apostles themselves uh, dared to reveal to congregations in that pursuit of understanding the whole revealed counsel of God, we would turn now to a creed of the church, Lord's Day 13's and the Heidelberg Catechism, the back of your Psalter hymnals, page 20, I believe. Page 20, Lord's Day 13. Which the, the Catechism in structure, uh, instructor asked the question <clears throat> in question 33, why is he called God's son, speaking of Jesus, why is he called God's only begotten son, when we also are God's children? And the answer is because Christ alone is the eternal, natural son of God. We, however, are adopted children of God, adopted by grace through Christ. And then the question, why do you call him our Lord? And the answer is because not with gold or silver, but with his precious blood, he has set us free from sin and from the tyranny of the devil, and has bought us, body and soul, to be his very own. That's as far as the Catechism goes in its explanation of that creed within the creed, the Apostles' Creed, why that what we confess that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God and our Lord. Here we have, beloved, the teaching of the Scripture and of the doctrines of the church of the identity of Jesus Christ. We've been considering this. Jesus is called Jesus because he's Savior. Jesus is called the Christ because he's the anointed of God. And now we have this wonderful name of the Son. He's the Son of God. And then we have his prerogative and his position. He's also our Lord and the various ramifications of those teachings of his sonship and of his lordship. As always, the catechism is very personal, and this is what we want to be in our instruction as well. Catechism is desirous that the sons of the Reformation might be truly those who appropriate the instruction that is given in the truth of God's word and of the Reformed faith. The Catechism is on the side of God in this, who himself wants us to be steeped in the truth of his Son, to give glory to his Son. There is an activity, therefore, that's a called by God of you. I preach, you hear. No, I preach, Christ preaches through me, we all hear. So we have a calling to speak and to hear. We have one mouth, we have two ears, and we're called as well to be spiritual in our attentiveness to this teaching now of Christ's sonship, his unique sonship, and ours by adoption, by grace, through Jesus Christ. Catechism would also have us active as we appropriate for us the teaching of Christ being our Lord, and therefore the teaching that we are delivered by his lordship from another lordship, even the lordship of sin and the tyranny of the devil. And this all because he's bought us with his body and soul and now to be his very own. And so we want to speak of this. 
Very important it is that we are continually grounded in the Word of God itself, and so we turn to that now, and that will be the basis for our instruction in the Son of God, our Lord, and our sonship, and our subjection to this great God, our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 1. Romans 1, we visit and we expound as we focus on a principal truth of the first verses, the very first verses of Romans chapter 1. We're going to read there the introduction that Paul gives to himself, of himself. He identifies himself as Paul, an apostle. And then he would introduce ourselves to ourselves by reminding us of our identity. In Rome, we are beloved of God and called to be saints. And especially is Paul concerned that we are introduced, if we never knew him before, or if we knew him but not so well by personal acquaintance, as he introduces to us, I say, Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God and our Lord. Note how he does that. Hear the word of God. Paul and the Holy Spirit through Paul, Romans 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, God's Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's as far as we will go, but I would call you as we begin this sermon proper here to remember the introduction that Paul has given of himself and especially of his Lord, but of you yourselves to yourselves, to all who are in Comstock Park or Walker or wherever you're found, Beloved of God and called to be saints, hear the gospel. Be introduced and reintroduced to the gospel of the Son of God, who is promised and declared, and then we get to introduce to the world as we live as his, uh, as his family members, sons of God ourselves, and subject to him who alone is our Lord. The doctrine of the Son of God has got to be understood. Jesus Christ is called the Son of God in the Bible, Old and New Testament, though in the New, more greatly revealed. This means He is God, for He is a Son, not by adoption or by grace as we are, not by creation, He does not become a Son, but he is a son of God, the son of God, singularly in that family of Trinity, who is the only and eternally begotten son of God, which means God from everlasting was bringing his son forth. There never was a time, children, 
when the Son of God, whom we know as Jesus, was not, or when God the Father had not a Son. Because the Son of God is a, an appellation, a call of Jesus, as one who is God the Son. So in a unique sense, he has a likeness. Fathers beget children or uh, spawn children, and that through the impregnation of a mother, that is a child or children after their likeness. But this son has essential likeness with the father. He's the express image of God's own person. The deity of Jesus Christ is brought out in that name. Jesus, his personal name, is that name which signifies that he is or represents Jehovah's salvation. Christ is that name which signifies his office as the Messiah, the Mashiach, the anointed one, ordained of God. Son of God is that primary name of his divinity. This is why the Jews... When he forgave sins, as only God can do, they would stone him because he asserted that he was this God by this, and they sought to kill him, thinking that it was blasphemy for any son of man to declare himself a son of God. This is the stumbling block of Christianity. Paul would declare it in a Roman-cultured civilization who were only thinking of the gods, and who were only thinking that Caesar is the one who is the greatest of the gods among us, and who has a hold on us, and to whom we pay taxes, and who has an army, and before whom, therefore, people trembled. Paul introduces not only another gospel, the gospel of God here, but another God, and that is the only God who's been of old. He is one who is far above Caesar, therefore, far above presidents and prime ministers, lords and ladies dancing. He is God, and he is no man, therefore, merely, but he is God, and this primarily of old. He's the God who's among us. Now, this is, I say, the stumbling block of Christianity, but Paul says and reminds the Roman Christians that this is a gospel of God and a God the Son that he would preach who is promised before through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. He's referring to the Old Testament. And we know in the Old Testament that God has a Son. And God in the beginning was saying, therefore, not to angels, his companions, his servants, but to a fellow creator, even God the Son, in communion with the Holy Spirit, let us make man. And so we read in the rest of the scriptures that by the word of God, that's the Son, who was in the beginning was God and was with God and was God creating all things. It's referring to God communicating existence into the nothingness and then by that same word of his power, shaping all things that he had created out of, uh, out of the chaos to be individual creatures. We believe in Jesus who's God. This is the, the wonderful confession of the early creeds of the church. 
apart from which, apart from belief in which that he is God, one cannot be saved, but which will cause people to perish everlastingly, so says one of the ancient creeds, the Athanasian Creed. Do you believe in God? Do you believe, therefore, in the Son of God that Paul says is vital for his gospel and that we know and the Christian church knows to be fundamental in the statement that we make to the world and to one another of the God of our salvation? Do you believe in God and therefore in God the Son? Do you believe in them as not two gods, but one God, God the Father and God the Son? Do you believe in this one God whose Father and whose Son as well, who are distinct by their personalities, one being a Father, one being a Son, one begetting and one being begotten? And do you believe in the Holy Spirit who is neither the begetter nor begotten, but who proceeds from both? This is the church's confession of Trinity. Not only do the cultists stumble at this, but all the logicians and all the mathematicians who they say one, and they see two, and they see another one, and they say the sum must be three. But our addition is this, children, and you better learn this in homeschooling and everywhere in the schooling of the church. One plus one plus one Father, Son, and Holy Ghost equals one. This is the great revelation of God, God who's one in being and three in persons. And he's this one God, Jesus the Son. We focus on that. The scriptures in the Old Testament speak of him who is the mighty God and the everlasting Father, the wonderful counselor, the Prince of Peace. That's the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 the wonderful Christmas prophecy of the child who would be born, the son who would be given, a child who would be born, a son given to the sons of men, who's before that, the Son of God. Micah speaks of him who would be born in Bethlehem, whose goings forth, his being begotten, is from everlasting. The eternal begotten Son of God is he. And so you have him being the creator. You have him being the provider, this son of God, by God, the wisdom of God in Proverbs 8, who was with God and beholding the glory of God and participating in the creation of God before the worlds even were created. Romans 9, Paul will go, moving to the New Testament, and we're going only to be brief in our under, uh, in our consideration of the divinity of Jesus. But Romans, Paul says that Jesus Christ, who's according to uh, the promises given to the Jews in Romans 9, verse 5, it says that he is the one who came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Son of God means the eternally blessed God. And to this he says, amen. The Apostle John as well just before he ends his epistle to his children in 1 John 5, he says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ, 
This is the true God and eternal life. You're ever witnessing or seeking to prepare to witness to Jehovah's false witnesses, those are the cultists who comes around and they deny the Trinity. Bring them that text. I don't know if they've found that one and have written it out of their Bible. They have their own Bible, you know. It's a mark of a cult. They also deny, therefore, the sufficiency of Scripture. They also haven't found this one, at least last time I talked to a Jehovah's false witness. They haven't found 1 Timothy 3.16, great is the mystery of godliness. God is manifest in the flesh, referring to Jesus, God the Son. And so, over and over, all the names, all the honors that are given to Jesus by the Scriptures, all the works of creation and providence and salvation indeed, and the honors of worship are given to him. The name I am, John, is is uh, full of saying at least seven times, Jesus is the I am. I'm the way, the truth, the life. I am the Son of God. I am the Good Shepherd. All of these things bespeak his divinity. And the Jews recognized it. And again, they sought to kill him at every turn. And beloved, we seek to honor him at every turn because we've been given faith. So we believe that Jesus Christ is God, and that's the first truth that's brought out by the title of his Son of God. It's striking, this truth of the Son of God is brought out in Romans 1, the first thing that Paul wants to bring when he's bringing the gospel. He's, he's uh, not sparing any of the ammunition of the truth and the centrality of the truth of the gospel of God. He brings out... I say it's striking not only that there's the scriptures that concern Jesus Christ, our Lord, but there is this one who's born of the seed of David. So, in other words, Paul says here he is the son of God, but reminds us that he's also the seed of David, according to the flesh. And here you have something that's necessary for under, us to understand when we're speaking of the Son of God as he's revealed in the Bible, and that's this, that God is God the Son in order to show himself glorious in saving a people so that he takes on human flesh and becomes a son among men whom the first promise delineates as the seed of the woman and who is revealed as the seed of Abraham the child, the true Isaac of God, the true child of the promise, and who's also the son of David. This means he's Messiah. God who saves and God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, who is this eternally glorious God, is the God who saves by also becoming in the person of the Son, a son among men, a son who is a man, a son a true son of David, a true seed of his. And this would mean, of course, that he's the son of God while he's still the son of David because the Bible doesn't say he was the son of God and then he became something he was not and, and in fact deprived himself of the divinity he had by, by becoming a son of man. No, 
At the same time, the scriptures say that Jesus is the Son of God, and he's also one who was born of the seed of David. At the same time. So God and man, and we know this to be the great truth of Philippians, that the Son of God who thought it not robbery to be equal with God became a man. And that for your sake, beloved, and that for mine. Because men sinned, and God the Savior must dwell among men. This is how he has determined it by coming in their place, fulfilling all the law and its requirements and perfection, and then taking on himself the sin of his people and in their place dying and atoning for sin in the perfect sacrifice of Calvary. This is the son of our confession. And I trust that though we've heard this again and again, the impression it makes is still something very deep. And as we hear that tonight, that it's very deep. Paul wants it to be so. He introduces himself. He introduces the Romans to themselves and reminds them that they are beloved of this God and called to be saints but especially he's concerned to bring out to them the Son of God, the Son of David, the God and Savior of sinners. And so he would bolster his message and the power of it by referring to those sacred scriptures which every believer loves and adores as revelations of God. The one revelation. Notice this. They all do the prophets speak concerning his son? There's only one message in the Bible. They're all God speaking through his, God's men, his prophets, of one son, his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. They all speak of the one who would be born of the seed of David, and now Paul speaks of the one who is born and who is crucified and whose gospel he will proclaim, and which he may proclaim, because Jesus is not only crucified, he's risen. And this is another significant point of this first point of mine. Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ is the Son of Man. Jesus Christ is Messiah. Jesus Christ is humbled, and now he's exalted, and there's something else that happened he is declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So the scriptures reveal this God and this seed of David and all that God promises in him. But there's something about that event more than a piece of paper, an event called the resurrection that seals the deal, as it were, stamps the truth, declares the victory of God over death, his own death, 
in the person of his son. And I say that because I want to be careful. God never dies. God always lives. But God came down, and he never comes down. And he's gone up, and he never goes up. He's always God. But in this, the gospel is revealed that, yes, there is a God like that. A son of God who becomes a son of man, and who comes down, and he goes up. And in this, Paul is saying, there's a declaration. In the Bible, there's a revelation. Of course, very important. Of course, to us. But in this event of this resurrection from the dead, his resurrection is a declaration. Now, what does that mean? What's the word declaration mean? That he's declared to be the Son of God, him who was the Son of God eternally and took on and was born of the seed of David. He's declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. What does that, I say, mean? Declaration. Well, beloved, it's a beautiful word. Orizo in the Greek. It is used as a verb to define the decree and the decreeing of God. Acts 2.23, according to the predestination or predetermination of God, God was, or Jesus Christ was crucified by those hands of those wicked men. That's the use of the word in Acts 2.23. In Hebrews, it is used to describe a limiting same word, orizo, of a certain day, a determination which is a defining of a certain day. In the book of Acts, in chapter 11, there's this compunction of the saints to give and send relief to the saints at Jerusalem, the poor saints in need in the famine, which compunction to send relief is expressed and translated as a determination. People determined to send relief. Now, what are we to say to this? And what does this mean? It's profound, beloved. Profound indeed is the Bible and every word of it. And these words that are also concepts in the very words themselves are especially profound, deep. You could know them is a reference here, after all, to the decree of God, which he knows before, by which he knows the end from the beginning, according to which he works all things because he's God and who has a will and he, he doesn't make a plan and, and forsake it and you know, crump, crumple up the paper and say back to, back to plan B or another plan. God is this determinative God, this God who has a way about him and a will of him which is not ours, which is not so fickle as man's, and whereby he determines and then works to define things. That's the idea. And when it's said that Jesus Christ is declared or defined to be the Son of God, determined and then revealed and set forth clearly as the Son of God by the resurrection, we can begin to understand what the Apostle wants to get at. 
Caesar might show that he's a, a mighty king by defeating the, the Turks or something. And by having this Roman army, which is a thing to be feared. But God, he does this glorious, inglorious thing and being God and coming down and taking on himself human flesh, but then showing this inglory is nothing to me, as it were. I will rise. I will raise my son. My son himself will take his life again, and there will be the spirit of holiness and the power of the third person of the Trinity participating in the Father's and the Son's resurrecting work, the triune God, crowning the Son, defining the Son as no piece of paper good, however inspired it would be. There's a promise in the scriptures, there's a declaration in that event. I asked you at the beginning of the sermon, do you believe in God? Well, beloved, do you believe in the scriptures of God and in this declaration of God? Are you believing that right now and that this word that is declared, that's preached, reflects the truth of what God himself preaches and declares and reveals. Resurrection. And glory to Jesus, who was just like us in humiliation, except for sin. He now is called the Lord of us through conquering sin and death and our sin and death and being risen to the right hand of God. Event that didn't make light or nothing of the, the down event, but conquered it and conquered the devil. God, you see, so entered into time that he entered into the battle of battles. There's a snake who's occupied by the devil, and there is this power and principalities and powers of the third of the angels of heaven unleashed on the earth, Comstock Park, New York City, Harvard, wherever. And God says, I have the victory. And I'm the God of glory in this Son, whom I give to share in my glory, to be the Son of my glory. You know, it's striking that, and I've often wondered about this, that the eternal generation of the Son, before the worlds, God was begetting His Son, fellowshipping with His Son in love in the family of God. But before that, or after that, and, after, and before the Son came into the flesh, I should say, there's Psalm 2 that speaks of God in the heavens reigning and laughing over those who oppose him and speaking against also those who are against his anointed and questioning the nations who rage and the people who plot a vain thing against himself and against his anointed. And it speaks, does the psalmist in Psalm 2, verse 6, Yet have I set my king on my holy hill of Zion, and he involves that truth of the setting of the king on his holy hill, his being made Lord and King, 
He involves that with the truth of his declaring, I will declare the decree, which is what? The Lord has said to me, you are my son today, I begotten you. Now what's that referring to? If the son is eternally begotten in glory, and that's true, what is this referring to? Oh, beloved, it's referring to the resurrection. That's our text in Romans chapter 1. God declares the Son of God to be begotten, as it were, this day. The beginning of the Son in resurrection is described here, that which was in the wonderful house and family of God eternally is now something that comes down into time and is involved in the mess and the mess of humanity and that comes out of the fray and has the victory and he calls this the beginning of the Son, this resurrection. And if you think that's only Paul and that Paul has his theology mixed up and that the eternally begetting of the Son cannot be involved in the resurrection, well, then you'd have to say also, that that was the problem of the preaching. In Acts chapter 13, we read of the apostles declaring to you glad tidings, verse 32, that the promise which was made to the fathers, God has fulfilled this for us, their children, and that he raised up Jesus as it is also written in the second psalm. We just quoted that. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He's spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David, fulfillment of Isaiah 55. I'll make you the son and the savior promised to David. And therefore, he also says in another Psalm, Psalm 16, you will not allow your holy one to see corruption. Again, a reference to the resurrection from the dead in Psalm 16. I want to put this all together, then conclude with a practical point. Jesus is the wonderful Son of God's love. He's the only beloved Son of God, the only begotten beloved Son of God, the eternal and natural Son, by essence. But God so condescends, you see, to to save us to the uttermost and to give us something of the glories of his love and fellowship. That he sends his son who is the eternal son to be one day that which he was not born of the seed of David and then to die for sin and to rise. And the Bible declares that to be the proof that there is a God among us whose glory is far above ours, whose glory is never lost, even though he becomes inglorious, whose beginning of the Son, in fact, is even revealed to be something that is revealed among the sons of men in a rising from the dead. And so without any doubt and with all the declarations of the angels shouting from heaven, we know Jesus to be the Son of God. And the resurrected Son of God. And this means 
everything to us. The Apostle Paul, and this is where I lead to my second point, that he's introduced by sons and subjects. The God who's promised and declared, the Son who's promised and declared, is introduced into our world by his sons and subjects. Paul the Apostle here is a son and a subject of God the Father, and God the Father revealed in the Son, who is Lord. That's Paul's relationship. Paul is full of this God and full of the message of God. Right away, the Christ-centered, God-centered Paul says, Paul, I'm Paul. Hello, I'm Paul. And I'm a slave a bond servant. It's the idea. I'm really a slave, a free man, in the greatest sense of the word, but bound to serve, of Jesus Christ and called to be an apostle and separated to the gospel of God, which he promised, and so on. That's Paul. Knew the sonship of God far more than he knew the sonship of Abraham. He used to boast in that and that he was a son of of Benjamin and so on. And now he's boasting that he is an adopted son of the family of God. And there's this son, Jesus, who's the center of his message, this son of God. In fact, when Paul was first converted, you read of that in Acts chapter 9, he began preaching. And what did he preach? He preached that Jesus is the son of God, Acts 9.20, I believe. That was his message, the center of his message. He introduced to the world, Jew and Gentile, there is this one who was born among us, who died among us, and who was ignominiously crucified, basely considered as a cursed son of God, uh, son, son of man, and that's it, a fake and a blasphemer, but him I declare to you, he's the son of God. The centurion at the cross said, truly this was the son of God, Paul says it, with apostolic confidence and the calling of Jesus himself who met him on the Damascus world said he was a changed man to preach the Holy Savior Jesus. Jesus is a son, or excuse me, Paul is a son of the Father now who was a son of iniquity persecuting the church. He's subject now not to his passions and not to his animosity against the Christian religion and this gospel are called Jesus. He is now on Jesus' side and he's declaring the heart of the message. You see, he doesn't beat around the bush here. Soon he's going to get to the gospel of God, which is all about free grace. But first, let me tell you, it's all about God. And you need to know that. I'm separated unto this and I'm living testimony of what a son of God can do to a servant of the devil and to a son of iniquity. I'm liberated and I participate in that son's salvation. Well, beloved, that's what Paul wants to remind the Romans when he says that we're the called of Jesus Christ in verse 6 and then he 
says to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, he wants to identify the Romans according to their skin? No. According to their being Italian or Dutch? English? No. But according to their being now sons of God and subjects of the Lord of heaven. You see, the catechism reminds us that that is the wonderful personal application. There is an eternal son, and because he's the eternal natural son of God who's also now Lord, we are adopted children of God, and because he is our Lord, we are his subjects, and that's a good thing. It's a good thing to belong to a Lord, to have a piece of land on his kingdom, to be those who participate in the riches of the kingdom and know the protection of the Lord of the mansion. And so this is what we're called to do. The scriptures reveal Jesus, the Son of God. The resurrection declares him to be the Son of God, and therefore, the one who is the Lord of salvation. And we are his children and his servants, called, having been taken into the family of God to be those in this world on his behalf. There's always this calling, isn't there? And it's an amazing thing because Jesus takes us into his own salvation life and family. We read in other places like Romans 6 that we are made partakers of his death. Our sins are forgiven. We're dead to sin it no longer has any kind of hold on us. And we are born unto his life by the resurrection of Jesus. That's, that's the status of a child of God. You know that, children? You're not your parents. You're not, you don't belong to the church, first of all. Your parents even, first of all. And indeed, though, the, you're subject to them. But you are property of Jesus and you're bought by him. And you're certainly not bought by the world and they're not there to sell you stuff so that you can just go along with it and its products. You're here as sons of God and subjects of the true Lord of heaven. And you're given the same power that raised Jesus from the dead according to the spirit of holiness to be risen with him. That's what faith does. It's so beautiful. I'm talking to people and you're sitting in your pew, but I'm realizing, and I hope you're realizing, that we're really not floating, but we're above this world, aren't we? We're in the pew, we're in the church, but we're not of it. We're in the world, but we're not of it. We're the prophets and priests and kings of, of Jesus, and we're saved, and we're those who are sons. In fact, the apostle says in 2 Corinthians 3 that we are his epistles. The Corinthians became the epistles of Paul, written not with flesh and blood and monk's ink, but with the Holy Spirit of Christ. That's who we are, living words, Bibles of God, revelations of who this Son of God is. And I say to you, beloved, there's a revelation in the Bible. There's a declaration on Calvary's tree and then the empty tomb. A declaration. But there's nothing like it 
when the church of Jesus Christ is made to participate in that. Amazing enough that God the Son would go through that and come out clean on the other side. In a way, it's not so amazing. He's God after all. But what about you? And what about me? Here we are, nothings. And we show it, don't we? And the world is too much to us. And we're just like the the sons of anarchy or every other TV show we, we watch. Just like the world. And Paul introduces us to ourselves that we might have the privilege of introducing the world to Jesus. We're separated. Preached to two, made sons, written in by the Holy Spirit, lifted up above the earth, free from sin and the tyranny of the devil. And while the world is sinking into the abyss of hell, we're given to rise above it. You? Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Do you believe that? You're sons of God. Do you believe that? By grace. Jesus Christ is Lord. You're subject. Do you show that? Your world, what is it? The kingdom of heaven? Or just the stuff? May it ever be the kingdom of heaven. And because we're those who are just with a small beginning, there's this word from heaven. While you're trying to show in an amazing faith way and to declare and to reveal that Jesus is the Son of God and Lord, God says to you, grace to you and peace from God our Father, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Father, we pray, would you bless us now. Pray to come away from truth, not coming away from truth, but further reflective upon it. We pray to come away from the preaching still hearing its echoes and to be those who understand that you use the weakest of, uh, of means, even mere men, humble means, but powerful, to bring truth to bear on us. May, Lord, the Holy Spirit apply truth to our hearts now. We've been thinking, we've been wandering in the fog of having our own identity crisis. We don't know who we are. And we would follow whoever has the most entertaining thing to follow. Lord God in heaven, we thank you that you bring us back. Remind us in basic things of the truth of the gospel, of what is, what's down and what's up, and where we're going. Thanks for the truth of the Son of God. This, the central truth of the whole counsel of God. Amen.